Turn with me in your Bibles, please, to 1 Peter chapter 1. Verse 18. Hear now the inerrant, infallible, and inspired word of God. For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who by him do believe in God that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory, that your faith and hope might be in God. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his most holy word. Let's hear from the Reverend Henry Scudder for a quotation. By all this you may see that in saving faith there are these two acts, an assent to the truth of the gospel, not only believing in general that there is a Christ, believing also what manner of person he is, and upon what condition he offered himself as a man, as a savior, or to man as a savior, but also believing that this Christ graciously offereth his love and himself to the Christian's self in particular. A hearty approbation of this offer of Christ, with consenting and hearty embracing of it, as our own peculiar duty and privilege, resolving to take him wholly and fully as he is, accepting of him according to the full tenor of the marriage covenant, not only as a man's savior to defend him from evil and save him and bring him to glory, but as his head to be ruled by him, as his Lord and King to worship and obey him, Believing in him, not only as his priest to satisfy and to make intercession for him, but also as his prophet to teach and as his king to govern him, cleaving cleaving to him in all estates, taking part with him in all the evils that accompany the profession of Christ's name, as well as in the good. The first act is not enough to save any. The second act cannot be without the former. Where both these are, there is a right receiving of the gospel. There is true faith. Oh, that is well said, isn't it? So, we have been studying saving faith from 1 Peter 1.21, where Peter will say, who by him, that is by Christ, do believe in God. And we've been using the larger catechism, haven't we? as our outline, and I want to say a few things about that in a moment. But let's do a little bit of review before we go forward. The last few times on this topic of saving faith, we looked at the first positive building block of saving faith, right? We said that it was knowledge. Knowledge, what the uh, older divines would call uh, notitia, right? They They put everything in Latin because that was the theological language of the day. And so they had three movements, three building blocks of faith. They would, they would say, notitia, ascensus, and fiducia. We would say that that means knowledge or understanding, then assent beyond that, and then trust beyond that. So uh, we have been looking at that first building block, knowledge. And last week especially, we, 
we, we said that, number one, there is an intellectual component to faith. You cannot rightly say that you believe in anything unless you understand what that thing is. Um, there is, uh, there is an, there's an, an attack on true faith with the doctrine of implicit faith. And implicit faith says you can believe in something that you don't really know what it is. It's just, you know, whatever that guy says. Whatever he says. Whatever this church says. I've got this go-to minister. Whatever he says, I believe. Right? And we, we, we noted how that, that that's destructive of true faith, destructive of true Christian liberty. And it, 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 it also uh, makes an attempt, which will never be successful, at removing responsibility from ourselves. Can't do that. We, ourselves, must believe and as we've said many times from this pulpit, we say again, there's no such thing in that sense of Christian grandchildren, that you're Christians because your parents are Christians' children. You may be Christians in the sense that you're not Muslim or Buddhist, but you're not Christians in the sense of true believing Christians because your parents believe. You yourselves must believe in Jesus. And that's why your parents speak Christ to you and bring you to church here so that you will hear the gospel and you yourselves one day will take hold of Jesus Christ. The other thing that we learned last week especially was that in this exercise of knowledge, we are not wont to draw a line. It would not be proper to draw a line and say, tell me what that minimum necessity is, pastor, so that I know what to believe and I can still be saved. And that is to put salvation as the object of our faith instead of God and Christ himself. So that I don't really want to go as far and as deep as I, as I can in God. I just want to know how far I need to go to be saved from hell. I want my fire insurance. I don't really want all of that other stuff. Right? And we saw what a, what a terrible proposition that was. And that it is a form of idolatry in that it replaces God with some other object. Remember what God himself uh, told Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. He said to him, Abraham, I am your shining shield. I am your exceeding great reward. Beloved, salvation is not your reward. God offers himself to you as the reward. And we remembered, didn't we, last week, those statements, oh, we think, especially when we think of these kinds of statements, we, we, we think of Samuel Rutherford who would say, if heaven is not occupied by Jesus, then I don't want to go there. It's Jesus I'm after, not heaven. Right? Okay, so that is a brief review. We cried up knowledge last week. And everyone, well, almost everyone in Protestantism would say pretty much those same things, although there is this techno-minimalist press very often for, you know, what's the bar that I need to cross? And we just wanted to take that away last week entirely. We want to go as far as we can. We looked at godly examples of Moses. We looked at uh, the Apostle Paul, who said that he wants to know Christ from one end of Christ's existence to the other. He wants to know the fellowship of his sufferings and the exaltation of his resurrection, right? He wants all of that and nothing less. And Moses, after spending 40 days with God upon Mount Sinai, will come down from that mountain and say, show me thy glory. 
You would think 40 days would be enough. No, no. Now I want the next bit. Because isn't that what seeing God does? It is an interesting thing in Scripture. I learned this from one of my mentors early on as he had examined this throughout the Scriptures. And it's, it's a proposition that has stuck with me for a long time. Hi, I also hope it sticks with you. That very often in Scripture, <clears throat> when the saints catch a glimpse of God and His glory, there is this dual reaction. The first reaction is horror, fear, because of the absolute holiness and otherness of God. But then the other response is being drawn in, like Moses. There's this attractive, repulsive reaction that takes place within the people of God. That God is so different and holy and majestic that there is abject fear. And yet, in that holiness and abject difference, there is also such beauty and glory that we're drawn to God. So at the same time, in the weakness of our humanity, we would flee from God, but in that spiritual side, that spiritual portion that God gives to us we're actually drawn to him so both of those things are true but for the Christian God is the goal that's the end of this enterprise that we've undertaken uh, by God's mercy and by God's grace he is the end it is beholding him right it's not oh we're waiting for heaven no we're waiting for Christ we're waiting for that glimpse of who he is. So we looked at 1 John chapter 3 and so on. All right, well, let's move on. And let's begin to talk about ascent. Um, I can't use, by the way, uh, the excuse that I have to shorten the sermon today because the reader went long because he didn't. He did a r- really fine job managing his time. A hint to Mr. Suarez in the, in the, uh, <laughs> in the service to come. <laughs> but... Um, Uh, But I do want to do a couple of things here by way of introduction today that I think are very important for us to think about. So we remember, don't we, our larger catechism when we talk about what, what the larger catechism will term justifying faith, right? Justifying faith. Now this is an important distinction that I want to speak with you about today because it is indeed an important distinction. So justifying faith is a saving grace wrought in the heart of a sinner by the spirit and word of God, whereby he, being convinced of his sin and misery and and of the inability in himself and all other creatures to recover him out of his lost condition, not only assenteth to the truth of the promise of the gospel, but receiveth and resteth upon Christ and his righteousness, therein held forth for pardon of sin and for the accepting and accounting of his person righteous in the sight of God for salvation. The question that the larger catechism asks that we've been using for our outline is, what is justifying faith? I want you to notice, though, that when we go to our confession of faith in chapter 14, we're not talking about justifying faith anymore. The the title of the chapter is not justifying faith, but saving faith. And in paragraph 2 that we read together just a little bit, just a few weeks ago, I'd I'd like to show you something a little bit different from the larger catechism. So paragraph two reads like this. By this faith, a Christian 
believeth to be true whatsoever is revealed in the word, for the authority of God himself speaking therein, and acteth differently upon that which each particular passage thereof containeth, yielding obedience to the commands, trembling at the threatenings, and embracing the promises of God for this life and that which is to come. But the principal acts of saving faith are accepting, receiving, and resting upon Christ alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life by virtue of the covenant of grace. Now, if you're like me, if you're you know, one of these theological pastor geek types like me, you're, you're going to see some big differences in those two statements. The larger catechism focuses on faith as justifying. The confession of faith is focusing on something broader than simple justification, but salvation generally. Our study, and I think it's right that we have the study ordered like this, is of saving faith. And I think that we end up with some difficult theological problems when we, say, overemphasize faith as justifying rather than faith as saving. We are, aren't we, the inheritors of the Protestant Reformation, the five solas, if you will. And so we remember, don't we, that one of those solas is by faith alone. And what we have intended to say by that and what our reformers taught by that was that our works do not figure in to our salvation. They are not the cause or genesis of our salvation. That our works as performed by us can never rise, as we will say in chapter 16, the chapter on good works. They can never rise to pass the level of divine judgment and scrutiny because they are always in some way imperfect. They fall short of the glory of God. Remember, the standard is not better than you used to be or better than the next guy or better than the publican, right? That's how the Pharisee put it. But that you reach the glory of God in all your behavior, in those nine ways, those three by three ways, in all of your thoughts, words, and deeds, that, that obedience is personal, perfect, and perpetual, and that it is in the manner, in the matter, and in the motive that you go about it. All of those things are necessary for a work to be perfect in God's sight. You must be perfect in all nine of those areas. And may I say humbly, along with you folks, that we fall short in all nine. We don't make it. So what we're trying to do in our discussion here of the five solas, right, is we want to make sure that we are maintaining faith alone. And so very often when we talk about faith, we talk about faith as justifying. Now let me say this before we panic. I believe that justifying faith and saving faith are the same faith. But they're being looked at for two particular, from two particular perspectives or for two particular uses, if you will. And so when we talk about justifying faith, we want to make sure that works are excluded. 
Where is boasting then? It is excluded. Works are excluded. By what law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith, by the principle of faith. That is faith alone, Paul will write in Romans chapter 3. And so this synergistic, you know, God works a little bit, you work a little bit, your good deeds outweigh the bad deeds, and so on, by the way, they never do. That's a lie. So in all of those things, when we begin to talk about that, we're talking about faith as justifying. Now, beloved, when we talk about saving faith, and we look at that broader, more biblical understanding of saving faith, when we widen it out to encompass all of Scripture, we understand that saving faith is identified by good works, according to James. I will show you my faith by my works. Can you show me your faith without works? That's intended to be a rhetorical question asked by James. The answer of which is no, I can't. If I say I have faith, but there are never any good works to accompany that faith, we want to be very careful about our assurance at that point, don't we? Now, some questions that have been asked over the centuries with regard to that. Oh, oh, come on, Pastor. How many good works did the thief on the cross have? Oh, I think I can name about five or six in just his short, regenerated existence. He testified for Christ instead of what he had been doing just a few moments before, casting these same accusations into the teeth of Christ. He testified for Christ. He hushed his fellow malefactor, and he confessed his own sins. We are receiving justice for what we have done. In other words, even in just that very short existence, that thief on the cross that believed in Christ and said to him, Lord, remember that title, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Well, in just those few moments of his regenerate life, he showed himself the doer of many good works. As a matter of fact, doesn't the Apostle Paul say in the same breath that he says, uh, by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But we have to have the next verse, don't we? For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which he hath afore prepared that we should walk in them. So I'm here to give you a Benadryl against the allergy to good works that many Christians seem to have because they forget that our salvation does include good works and Christ has purchased those good works and we are created in Christ unto good works. So let's not divorce our salvation from good works. Shall we divorce our justification from our good works? Yes, because our good works will never be good enough to justify us. Only the good works of Christ will justify a sinner as they are imputed to him by faith alone, just like they were to Abraham, just like they were to Noah, and just like they were to many other Old Testament saints we read about in Hebrews 11. So please hear Pastor Riddell very clearly. When we begin now to talk about assent and trust, we have excluded works from our justification and our boasting. 
We have not, however, excluded works from your salvation, beloved, because you are created in Christ Jesus unto good works. And when Paul says you are created in Christ Jesus, that's not talking about your being created as a human being. That is talking about your new creation. Old things have passed away. All things are become new. Now, rather than being rebels, we are repentant, obedient, sinful sinners. Yet there is a measure of something that we do in this life that can be called obedience. So, beloved, when our confession then goes on in 14.2 to speak of saving faith, it says, by this faith a Christian believes whatever is revealed in the Bible by the voice of God who speaks it because he receives the scripture as the very word of God. This is part and parcel of saving faith. We no longer pick and choose out of the Bible. I remember once as a a junior high student, I was uh, regular in church in those days. It was an evangelical church. And I had a friend at school, and one day uh, I spoke to him about the Lord Jesus. And I asked him what he thought about the Bible and Christ. And he told me several things that he believed about Christ. Uh, None of them rose to the level of what I would call saving truth. You know, good teacher, holy guy, really appreciated, pivotal figure in history. Even in junior high, we were having these kinds of discussions, right? And then I said, well, what do you think of the Bible? He said, oh, well, I believe the Bible is, is true, yeah. Oh, except for those stories, you know, like Noah's Ark. And that's what I said to him, really? So then when Jesus referenced Noah's Ark, was that good guy that you're talking about, was he wrong? Of course, he didn't have an answer for that, right? But, but the point of the matter is that there are lots of confessions that people make about Christ that are true, that are <clears throat> where they have given their assent to those truths. And yet, we would not identify those truths and that assent as saving in itself. Henry Scudder, in our quotation today, married these two things together, and that is exactly what we must do, beloved. The the difficulty, I think, that we have is that there are a lot of folks that, that look at those three movements of faith, knowledge, assent, and trust, And they want to look at them as like three different steps of faith. Like faith grows up into that. But it doesn't. These are things that saving faith is all the time, together. There is knowledge. There is assent. And there is a hearty resting. We have confessed the Westminster Confession of Faith and the larger and shorter catechisms All of the officers in this denomination are required to swear to the 1646 version of the standards. And so we have done so. And so we have all said that it is the confession of our faith that justifying faith not only assents, but it does something more. You're going to hear 
all throughout Christendom about people that will say, no, that's all it is. It's assent. This week I was reading in preparation <clears throat> one of my favorites in the larger catechism, uh, an independent uh, minister of the 17th century. His name is Thomas Ridgely. And he has a, a two-volume commentary on the larger catechism. And then someone, and I didn't take the time to look up who it was, but someone is making notes on his discussion. And so Thomas Ridgely comes to this portion, question 72 of the larger catechism, and, and comes rightly to the understanding that faith is simply more than assent, or more than simple assent. That is also this, this fiducial aspect, this trusting and resting. And we will see this in scripture. That, you know, why would the Bible, if faith is only assent, why would the Bible in, in so many places, almost uh, too numerous to be named, you know, standing on one leg for sure, is, is that you have this, um, these physical movements that are spoken of with regard to faith. Resting upon Christ, coming to Christ, abiding in Him. There are all of these, these analogies, these physical analogies, where there is a movement of a person doing something. If it is simple ascent, why would the Lord choose such terms as that? And yet, saying that, we don't want to divorce neither this fiducial element from assent, and especially not assent from the fiducial element. And I'll show you what I mean as we, as we go forward in our study together. So what I wanted to do today is have this discussion with you about the difference between saving faith and justifying faith. It's the same faith being considered from two different perspectives. And I wanted to, like I said, cure our allergy with regard to good works and faith. Because we should not have, we should not be allergic to good works in the same sentence as faith. It doesn't assault faith alone. We are justified by faith alone, that is, apart from our good works. It's the works of Christ that stand before God in our stead that we may be accepted into the perfect courts of glory with a glorious obedience, not our own. Right? Isn't that exactly what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter 3? Let's turn there for a moment and remember Philippians 3. We remembered it last week with regard to Paul's desiring to know Christ from one end of his exaltation to the other end of his humiliation. But now look at, look at verse uh, 8. Yea, doubtless I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ. The faith of Christ, they're not the faithfulness of Christ, but faith that rests upon Christ. Uh, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain to the resurrection of the dead. <clears throat> okay. So notice that Paul will follow that, 
having a perfect righteousness by which to stand before God, then he will immediately say, I have not yet attained. It is not my perfection that's at issue here. All right, so with that then, let's go ahead and talk about a few things uh, regarding assent. What is assent? And what do our Westminster divines mean when they use the word assent? And why do they say assent is not enough? Okay? Those are good questions. And there is much controversy in the Christian church, in Christendom, uh, over this issue. There is a a very popular uh, uh, church, if you will. Uh, It is, for some, the majority report of Christianity. When the newsman wants to go get the Christian point of view... What does he do? He goes over to the local Catholic church, doesn't he? Now, we think he's going to Antichrist. We get that. But that's where he goes. He goes to the local priest to get the Christian point of view. And what does Rome confess about faith? Well, in the, in the Tridentine documents of the Council of Trent, Rome ensconced in her documents, Semperiatum, once for all, without ever changing, that, faith, that if anyone says that faith is more than mere assent, let him be anathema. That's what Rome said in the 16th century. Well, we say it is. In other words, flying in the face of Trent's uh, fulminations, if you will, our Westminster divine said, no, it is more than assent. Sorry, Trent. Right? Uh, Of more recent understanding, a man by the name of Gordon Clark, a very prominent uh, Christian apologist and theologian, philosopher, uh, in his book Faith and Saving Faith, draws assent and fiducia together into more like one act, all considered together. I think that's probably a little closer to the truth than those who would divide assent. And trust. But then one of uh, Dr. Clark's followers, a man by the name of John Robbins, popularized uh, an old error that is called Sandemanianism, and that's the Romish error uh, gone to seed, which says that all faith requires is assent, intellectual, mental assent to biblical truth statements or propositions, if you will. Um, our confession of faith and our larger catechism inveigh against that kind of ideology. What we're going to say in this study is that saving assent and saving trust always go together. You can't have one without the other. This is what Dr. Scudder said as we read him earlier today. We, we want to bring these, these three aspects of saving faith together. Knowledge, assent, and trust but they are all separate in their own vein. And, we, and so we, we take them apart so that we can understand the component pieces, but we don't separate them as if you can have one without the other in what we call saving faith. So, beloved, in the first instance, we saw knowledge last week. And we saw what kind of knowledge? Not just bare knowledge. Not just a knowledge that, that says, okay, well, give me just the, the minimal amount of propositions. How many is it, 13 or 14? Oh, it's 17? I don't know. That's a lot of work. 
Right? It's not like that. It's know God and continue to know him. How many of you would say, I think I have enough of Jesus now. I think I know enough about him now. Well, that's right. I, I know that about you and I hope you know that about me. That, that we want with Moses, show me thy glory. With Paul, we want to know Christ from the top to the bottom. What we know today, we hope, will be less than what we know tomorrow. And then when that capacity for knowledge is increased in glory, when we ourselves are glorified, and God begins this process of all eternity, rolling out one thing after another of himself, as he, oh yeah, you think that's good? Look at this! And we're amazed, over and again, throughout eternity, that God is the exact focus of all of our eternal life. That's what abundant living truly is. It begins now and ends there and never ends there, or we might say. So now we come to assent then, and what do we want to say about assent? Assent is, is, a, um, is a mental acceptance agreement with something after understanding is had. If I speak to you in a language you don't understand... And then I ask you, do you agree with that? You're going to have to say, well, I don't know. You said it in a language I don't understand. If I say to you, Kalimera, that's modern Greek for good day. If I say to you, Kalimera, and you, I don't know what that means. I can't assent to that. But if you understand it, then you make a choice, don't you? Whether to assent or not to that truth. Now, the Bible is full of truth statements. The Bible is truth itself. Thy word is truth, Jesus said in John chapter 17. Every statement in the Bible is true. Uh, The word of God, uh, thy words are words most pure as silver tried in the fire seven times. Uh, It is the word that is God breathed. It is breathed out by God. It is true because God is true. It is impossible for God to lie and so it is impossible for his word to lie. Interestingly, that is one of the first truths that man must assent to in order to hear Christ. Because we don't know Christ. If if Jesus were to walk in, we wouldn't know him from any other man because he appeared like any other man. And the appearance of him would not simply be enough. When John will write in John chapter 1 and verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father full of grace and truth. John did not learn of Christ's glory as the only begotten of the Father by looking at him. It was by receiving the word of Christ and assenting to it, having this mental agreement. Yes, this is true. Everything that Jesus said about himself when he claimed to be the son of God, when he claimed to to be in the beginning with God, when he claimed to speak the words of God, to do the works of God, to have the authority of God, to raise the dead and to give life to whomsoever he will. Everything that Jesus said about himself is true. We give our assent to that. 
we say, yes, that is true. I'd like to show you that there are some intelligences, some created intelligences that go a really long way down the road of ascent, but never in order to their, quote, salvation or glory. Turn with me, if you will, in your Bibles to, oh, let me go to the next page in my notes so I get it right. Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8, verse 28. And when he was come to the other side, into the country of the Gergesenes, there met him two possessed with devils, coming out of the tombs, exceeding fierce, so that no man might pass by that way. And behold, they cried out, saying, What have we to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of God? Art thou come hither to torment us before the time? And there was a good way off from them, and heard of many swine feeding. So the devils besought him, saying, If thou cast us out, suffer us to go away into the herd of swine. And he said unto them, Go. And when they were come out, they went into the herd of swine, and behold, the whole herd of swine ran violently down a steep place into the sea and perished in the waters. And they that kept them fled And went their ways into the city and told everything and what was befallen to the possessed of the devils. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they besought him that he would depart out of their coasts. Turn with me over to Mark chapter 5. Out of the three gospels where this scene is found, Mark chapter 5, I believe, is the fullest account. And they came over to the other side of the sea, into the country of the Gadarenes. And when he was come out of the ship, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit, who had his dwelling among the tombs, and no man could bind him, no, not with chains, because that he had been often bound with fetters and chains, and the chains had been plucked asunder by him, and the fetters broken in pieces, neither could any man tame him. And always, night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying and cutting himself with stones. But when he saw Jesus afar off, he ran and worshipped him, and cried with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of the Most High God? I adjure thee by God that thou torment me not. For he said unto him, Come out of the man, thou unclean spirit. And he asked him, What is thy name? And he answered, saying, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he besought him that he would not send him away out of the country. Now there was there nigh unto the mountains a great herd of swine feeding, and all the devils besought him, saying, Send us into the swine, that we may enter into them. And forthwith Jesus gave them leave, and the unclean spirits went out and entered into the swine, and the herd ran violently down a steep place into the sea. They were about two thousand, and were choked in the sea. And they that fed the swine fled, and told it in the city and in the country. And they went out to see what it was that was done. And they come to Jesus and see him that was possessed with the devil and had the legion sitting and clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And they that saw it told them 
how it befell to him that was possessed with the devil, and also concerning the swine. And they began to pray him to depart out of their coasts. And when he was come into the ship, he that had been possessed with the devil prayed him that he might be with him. Howbeit Jesus suffered him not, but saith unto him, Go home to thy friends and tell how great things the Lord hath done for thee, and hath and hath, and hath had compassion on thee. And he departed and began to publish in Decapolis how great things Jesus had done for him. And all men did marvel. Okay. Uh, the, the only uh, addition that Luke has to offer is that the Greek word abyss is used there. Please don't cast us into the abyss or into the deep. Um, it seems that the devils didn't want to be sent perhaps into the sea. They were sent into the swine instead and then they ran into the sea. Don't ask me about all of those particulars. I don't have a lot of understanding there and commentators have speculated a lot on that. But there are some things for our notice here in this topic that are very important. Number one, let's note that all of these devils recognize and believe who Jesus Christ is. They have given their mental assent they are intelligences after all. They give their mental assent to Jesus as the son of the most high God, the sovereign who is able either to send them into the abyss or out of the country or into the swine. They know all of that and believe uh, in, that, in that term assent. They believe that Jesus is able to do all of those things. They even come to him and worship him. Oh, by the way, let me give you one piece of relief here. In Matthew, we read there were two men. Here we read there was one. In Luke, we read also that there was one. The reason we have one in Luke and in Mark is because we're emphasizing all the way through that narrative this one man that will ask to become a disciple of Christ. The other one apparently didn't do that. And so Luke and Mark are going to emphasize that one man. And that's why there came a man. If there came two men, there certainly came a man as well right but Matthew sorry Mark well Matthew is talking about both of them because the story is not quite the same he he, he has a different emphasis okay so Mark and Luke are emphasizing this one man all the way through that wants to become a disciple of Christ and Jesus tells him no you go give your personal testimony instead of being a preacher okay all right so a little bit of relief there so all of the devils besought him, that is, they prayed to him, Christ. They called him the Son of the Most High, or the Son of God Most High, is how Luke records it. Um, they come and worship at his feet, these devils. They ask leave for something from him. Um, and so notice that they have, they've gone quite a little ways down the road in their knowledge and assent with regard to Christ, haven't they? But there's no trusting or resting on Christ. There's no movement toward him in that sense. What they're seeking is relief from the threat that he poses to them. They recognize that he will one day judge them. You know, there are a lot of people like that. They hear about Christ they will assent to the fact that he is the son of the most high God. They will assent that there will be a judgment one day. Oh, they may do it in different kinds of terms. They'll, they'll say, oh, well, you know, what goes around comes around. And they'll reveal their knowledge of a judgment 
to come in a sort of providential visitation, right? They will ask the Lord for things when they're in trouble or under threat. They'll ask the Lord to relieve them of some temporal uh, difficulty, some horrible thing that they think is about to happen. They'll ask, for instance, even for one thing instead of another. Right? They may even make commitments to God. Oh, Lord, if you'll do this for me, I'll fill in the blank. There are a lot like these devils that are in the man that's inhabited by the legion and then in the swine. They're a lot like that in that they have a lot of things that they believe about Christ. We heard when we were talking about knowledge, this important thing that Jesus said in John chapter 8 to the Pharisees. He said, unless you believe that I am he or that I am that I am, unless you believe that I am the eternal God, you will die in your sins. Did the devils believe that about Christ? They did. They assented to the truth of that fact. Did that give them any favor? Were they in God's favor at all because they assented to that truth? Not at all. That only heaped up a greater judgment for them. When our Westminster divines say, not only assenteth to the truth of the promise of the gospel, what they're saying is, beloved, that there's something that is beyond understanding and assent. We might think of other characters in Scripture. Oh, well, that's demons, Pastor. You can't, you, you can't talk about people like demons in that. Well, we've already showed some similarities. But shall we talk about maybe some other characters? How about good King Saul, or maybe not so good King Saul? What did Saul believe about God? Did Saul believe that God was God Most High? He did. Did he assent to that proposition? Absolutely he did. Did Saul believe many of the moral things that God had taught him? Say that it was a capital offense to go to a medium that has a familiar spirit. A witch. He did. He believed that. He assented to that. In fact, he enacted it. Did Saul believe that fasting was a way to entreat God's favor? Yeah, he did. He believed that. Did Saul believe that David and his line were going to inhabit the throne and that Messiah would come through David? Absolutely he did. He told David as much when he said, I know that the Lord will make you and your sons king. Did Saul ever repose himself on that Christ? No, he never did. But he had a lot of knowledge and a lot of things that he assented to. You see, beloved, now why our divines are talking about these three, not steps, but these three components. Um, there were others that didn't believe all those things that Saul believed. Right? But notice that 
that Saul believed many things and he believed them as true. That is, he received them as true and said, yes, this is the truth. If you were to ask him, do you believe that David will be king one day? Well, we we don't have to ask. He confessed as much. So, beloved, when our Westminster divines are writing about men like Saul, I mean... I have a listing of a few things more. You know, I write them down because I don't remember all of them when I'm standing here. Did, did Saul believe that, that, uh, that, uh, that someone should seek, that a man should seek the favor of God before he embarks on an endeavor? He does. That's, in fact, that's the excuse he gave to Samuel. You hadn't come. The Philistines were gathering. I had not yet entreated the favor of the Lord by sacrifice. So I forced myself. And entreated his favor. Right? So what did Saul believe? That it was dangerous to go forth without the favor of God. Is that a good truth? It is a good truth. Yeah. Uh, did, Did Saul believe that Samuel spoke the word of God as a prophet of God? He did. As a matter of fact, he had a particular application of that to himself. Right? Stop seeking the donkeys. Your father stopped worrying about donkeys and he's worried about you. So go home and show yourself to your father. Those, those donkeys are found. He got home and he found it just like Samuel had said. And Samuel also told him, and by the way, on your way home, you're going to go up on the top of this mountain and you're going to see a company of prophets. You're going to come down with them and you will prophesy with them. Did that happen? It did happen. Did Saul believe that Samuel spoke the word of God? Yes, he did. That he was a prophet of God? Yes, he did. Did he believe that he had sinned and done wrong in offering the burnt sacrifice? He said as much to Samuel, I have sinned. Return now with me uh, before the people that I may go and worship the Lord. I want to be restored. Is that a bad desire? No, it's not a bad desire. It's, It's that knowledge and assent that we're seeing in Saul. Uh, Did Saul believe that he needed to seek direction from the Lord? Yes. Yes, he sought direction from the Lord. Bring me the, bring me the, the, um, the ephod, right? Who is it? Let's cast lots. Who is it? If it's even my son Jonathan, he will die. Right? You remember that? And then at the end, he was going to go out against the Philistines again. And God hadn't answered him, so he went to the medium instead. He was seeking direction from the Lord, at least up to that point. He thought that was a good thing. Um, did he believe that he could not violate his oath, although he made it sinfully, that you should keep the vows that you make? He did because he had vowed, if anybody tastes any food this day in my army, he's going to be put to death. And then, it will, and then he will go on to say, even if it's Jonathan, my son, I'm not going to break my, my oath. Is that a good thing? Well, it, it, it's a good thing to understand that you don't break oaths, yes. He assented to that truth. And finally, he even confessed his sin and sought forgiveness and restoration to worship. But there were some very, very important things missing in his religious life. His ascent only took him so far. And it did not take him as far as salvation. There were many who understood Christ's miracles as well. They received Christ as one that they could not gainsay that, that 
Christ performed miracles. Look at Mark chapter 3 with me for a moment. And he entered again into the synagogue. And there was a man there which had a withered hand. And they watched him, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath day, that they might accuse him. And he saith unto the man which had the withered hand, Stand forth. And he saith unto them, Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath days, or to do evil, to save life, or to kill? But they held their peace. And when he had looked round about on them with anger, being grieved for the hardness of their hearts, he saith unto the man, Stretch forth thine hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored as the other. And the Pharisees went out and straightway took counsel with the Herodians against him, how they might destroy him. There are a couple of things working there. Did they believe that Jesus could heal? Absolutely they did. And what did that point to? Well, that pointed to at least that he was from God. Didn't they admit as much by sending uh, um, Nicodemus to Christ in John chapter 3? They admitted that he was at least a teacher come from God. Did they receive him? No, they did not receive him. And Jesus looked around on the hardness of their hearts. And what is the hardness of their hearts exactly? How do we expound it from the passage? The hardness of their hearts is that they know he is a teacher sent from God that can do these miracles and yet they will not receive him. They know he is mighty to save but will not be saved by him. If I might really bring it to its fullness. Look at Luke chapter 13 with me for a moment. Begin our reading in verse 10. And he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman which had a spirit of infirmity 18 years and was bowed together and could in no wise lift up herself. And when Jesus saw her, he called her to him and said unto her, Woman, thou art loosed from thine infirmity. And he laid his hands on her and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. And the ruler of the synagogue answered with indignation because that Jesus had healed on the Sabbath day and said unto the people, There are six days in which men ought to work, and in them therefore come and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Did this man believe that Jesus had healed this woman? Yes. And that that was the power of God? Yes. Did he receive Christ? Did he come to Christ? Did he rest on Christ? Those other words that we use for this fiducial element. Never. Never did he. But he received and assented to some very important truth about Christ, didn't he? And the other passage that I would call your attention to in closing here is John chapter 12. Verse 1. Then Jesus six days before the Passover came to Bethany, where Lazarus, which had been dead, whom he raised from the dead. Where Lazarus was, which had been dead, whom he raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, and Martha served. But Lazarus was one of them that sat at table with him. 
Then took Mary a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. Then saith one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, which should betray him. Why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the bag and bear what was put therein. Then said Jesus, let her alone. Against the day of my burying hath she kept this. For the poor always ye have with you, but me ye have not always. Much people of the Jews, therefore, knew that he was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might see Lazarus also, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests consulted that they might put Lazarus also to death, because that by reason of him many of the Jews went away and believed on Jesus. Did they believe that Lazarus was raised from the dead? That Jesus raised him from the dead? That that, 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 that that particular act spoke of the mighty power of God resident in Christ? Absolutely all of those things they believed and assented to. They could not say otherwise. And yet, did they rest on Christ? Did they believe certain things then about Christ? They did. They might even have believed that he was Messiah. We'll remember, and I'll not take the time to turn there, but in Matthew chapter 21, Jesus gives the parable of the vineyard. And remember the last motion in that parable. The, the owner of the vineyard says, after they have beat up and killed his prophets, surely they will reverence my son. I will send my son to receive the produce from the vineyard. And they say to one another, this is the heir Let us kill him that we may have the inheritance ourselves. And so then um, Matthew gives his inspired commentary after that. Then the Pharisees were incensed because they knew he had spoken this parable about them. What did they believe about Christ? I think truly they believed Many, many more things than we are apt to give them credit for. They understood, they gave their assent, but they never came to Christ. Never. They never reposed themselves upon him. The other personage that we see in the passage that we just read is Judas. And we might set him up as an example of assent only. How far down the, down the way did Judas go in his understanding, knowledge, and assent? How far, beloved? Certainly very far. We remember that Judas was one of the twelve that was sent out to preach the kingdom of God. To heal the sick. To lay hands on lepers. And so on. That Judas was with Christ and heard all of Christ's teaching and sermons. That Judas passed out fish and loaves and gathered up baskets of scraps afterward. Finally, though, being disillusioned with where everything was going and not having the kingdom that he wanted, he betrayed Christ. Did Judas seek restoration and was he sorry afterward yes he did he went a long way 
toward assent, he said, I have sinned in that I have shed or betrayed innocent blood. So, beloved, assent goes a long way, but not far enough. And so to wrap up today then, um, as one who has a very, very strong appreciation for the writings of Dr. Clark, I would say that we want to make sure we put assent in its proper place. It is not assent only, as we have confessed in the larger catechism. Not only assenteth to the truth of the promise of the gospel. It is indeed possible to do that as an observer only. And we don't want to do that. We don't want to be mere observers. There's a figure that we read about, and I'll close with this, in Daniel chapter 5. His name is Belshazzar. He is the grandson of great king Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel serves Nebuchadnezzar. And in chapter 4, we hear a very important story about Nebuchadnezzar. That he has already learned that there is a rock cut out of the mountains made without hands that will destroy all of the kingdoms of the world and all of the kingdoms of the world will serve this kingdom that is made without hands. Obviously uh, an allusion to the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And that he is to humble himself. Well, so then he's to break off his sins by righteousness and so on. Then he sees this dream Right where these seven years pass over and Daniel will interpret that dream for him and tell him you're going to be removed from men you're going to be like a beast you're going to eat grass like oxen your nails are going to look like bird's claws your hair is going to look like bird's feathers and after seven times pass over you most theologians believe that's an allusion to seven years and then you'll be brought back and you will give praise to the most high who rules in the affairs of men after you've been humbled. All these things come to pass on King Nebuchadnezzar. And he gives his testimony at the end of chapter 4. And what a testimony it is. It is a wonderful testimony. I don't know where, whether or not we'll find Nebuchadnezzar in eternal glory or not. I, I, I just don't know. I can't say. But that I'm wondering about the possibility of that is a very interesting thing with regard to the reporting of him in scripture. Okay. His grandson... Belshazzar knew all of that. He knew every bit of it. He assented to it that it was true. He had the knowledge of his father. He had the knowledge of his father's days that that his father had made this testimony about the God of Daniel and all the earth. That Nebuchadnezzar had also extolled the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who was with them in the fiery furnace. And he knew all of that. He assented to it that it was true. Did he ever cast himself upon that God? No. He never did. Instead, he brought in his vessels. And they, had, and they were drinking wine in his drunken party out of the holy vessels of God. And then appears the handwriting on the wall. And Daniel is the only man in the kingdom that can interpret the handwriting on the wall. Mene, mene, tekel, Ufarsin, right? Weighed in the balances, found wanting, and your kingdom is divided, ripped from you. And he died that night. 
but not before he heard the accusation of Daniel, who said, Your father, grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar, ate grass like an ox because he defied God Most High and said he had built this Babylon all himself. And because he defied God Most High, he was set for seven years eating grass like an ox until he knew that God reigns in the affairs of men. And you, Belshazzar, you knew all these things. And that's why when judgment came, your knees knocked together. You never submitted yourselves to those truths, although you knew them and said they were true and assented to their veracity. You never came and bowed yourself before that God. May I say, beloved, there's a lot of assent there in the mind of Belshazzar. But there's never a trusting nor a resting upon the God of Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel. No, assent is not enough. But it is not separated rightly from this fiducial element, which, will be, which we, Lord willing, will begin to talk about next week. Let's stand and call upon the Lord in prayer. Our dear Heavenly Father, we do pray that thou wouldst be with us as we consider these things. As we have looked at knowledge and we've looked at assent. Oh Lord, we pray that thou wouldst grant us this, this hearty assent. A full-souled assent. That which is indeed part and parcel of a resting upon Christ, a coming to Christ, a, a, an abiding in him. Oh Lord, we pray that we would not be like those observers in the synagogue who saw him, who believed what he did as true, and yet did not come to him. We pray that we would not be like those ten lepers that were cleansed and only one coming back to give glory unto thy name. That we would have not just an assent to those truths, abilities, and saving strength that our Lord Jesus Christ has, but that we ourselves would come under that saving strength. O Lord, deliver us from mere intellectual assent and grant to us a whole souled resting in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.